I wanted to, while it's still January, just, offer a few reflections to start the new year. Because traditionally, this is a time of year when we often take stock of the year that's gone and start thinking about our intentions for the year ahead. And metaphorically, it can be a bit like hitting the reset button. So we get to contemplate what's been going on in our lives recently and, if necessary, maybe make some changes so that we have a better chance of being able to live more in alignment with our deeper aspirations. And as part of that kind of resetting, I thought to just say a little bit about how this is often done in the Buddhist tradition. I think many of you have been on retreats and are familiar with the practice at the start of a retreat of taking what's known as the refuges and the precepts. But some of you may not be so familiar with that process or what it means. So I thought just to say a little bit about taking refuge from my own personal perspective. Because in my uh, the last newsletter that I sent out yesterday, there's something about everything that's been happening around the world right now that the precariousness of life feels quite in one's face, feels quite intense. So, of course, we've got the current coronavirus. The bushfires in Australia are flaring up again around Canberra. Perhaps both of those are in some ways linked to the climate crisis, which is much more in our consciousness. And on that note, I wanted to thank the people who went to the XR meeting last week. Uh, you know, just finding those opportunities to do what we can in terms of hopefully making a difference. But all of those different crises, they often reveal where, when, and how we try to find stability. We try to get ground under our feet. Often we try to find stability in situations that actually can't provide it. So, for example, I was reading recently about some multimillionaires who've been coming to New Zealand and building state-of-the-art bunkers with state-of-the-art security and all the accoutrements that I guess millionaires think they need to survive some kind of... What do you think? Is that going to work? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So there's, there's many different... And even if they get through the first wave, you know, we all, I think all of us here know because of the truth of interconnectedness, of someone, a handful of people alone in a bunker is probably not going to last that long. I, I heard of one in America that's state-of-the-art, including the armory. The armory. Oh, well, that's uh, that's going to be fun. Yes, yeah, yeah. So right there we see that even with the most, all the money in the world even with the most state-of-the-art so-called survival systems, there's no guarantee that we won't lose our homes, our possessions, our livelihoods. We saw that numerous times in Australia. We won't lose our lives. In fact, 
that is exactly what's going to happen to every one of us here. We will lose our homes. We will lose our possessions, our status, our livelihoods, and our lives. That is inescapable. So in many ways, all of the Buddha's teachings are intended to address this existential uncertainty. And over and over again, he encouraged us to stop trying to get external circumstances to give us our safety and security and instead turn our attention inwards and cultivate the wisdom and the heart qualities, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, because those are the only things that can be a reliable support no matter what's going on out there. So I'd like to read you just one uh, short text from the discourses talking about what is true refuge. He says, They go to many a refuge, to mountains and forests, to parks and tree shrines, people who are threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge, not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when, having gone to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha for refuge, you, are, you see with right discernment the Four Noble Truths. Stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the stilling of stress. That's the secure refuge. That's the supreme refuge. That's the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. So taking refuge in what are traditionally known as the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, or the truth of the teachings, and the Sangha, or the community of people who are exploring these teachings. So that includes all of us here tonight. And with that terminology of the three jewels, we have the sense of treasure, in fact, of something that's priceless. But before we go any further, I want to emphasize that this taking refuge is an invitation. It's not an expectation. There's no, no pressure in any way to do this. It's an invitation to find your own way of making sense of what's being offered here. And I say that because I know for myself, when I first even heard the term refuge, I thought, well, I don't need a refuge. I'm independent. I'm self-reliant. I don't want to be some kind of refugee. You know, this word had negative connotations for me. But what I didn't see was that actually I was always taking refuge in something, whether I was aware of it or not. And I think this is true for all of us. When we get stressed or distressed, we naturally look for comfort, for solace, for escape. But usually the refuges that we turn to are not actually very helpful, at least not in the long term. So, for example, some of us take refuge in busyness and overwork, never having time to think about anything except the next thing on the to-do list or the deadline. Some of people take refuge in substances, in alcohol, or recreational drugs, or other kinds of addictions, to, you could say, to technology, to sex, to food, to shopping. There's many, many different forms of addictive behavior available to us. 
Some people take refuge in uh, online dating and relationships and uh, fantasies or media and entertainment and binge-watching TV and those kind of things. And not all of those things are in and of themselves necessarily bad, but it's how we're relating to them that we want to pay attention to. Because if we're using them as strategies to habitually avoid dealing with reality, then at some point they're going to let us down. And in the process the drawbacks of those things, often they're quite toxic to our hearts and minds in the long term. So these things are temporary refuges, and for the most part they tend to get in the way of clear seeing, of insight, which is what we're doing here. So the Buddha, in his teachings, offers a different kind of refuge that supports us to see clearly and to wake up from delusion. And in fact, that's the original meaning of the word Buddha. It's a kind of a title. It's said that after he became fully enlightened, he met somebody who said, who or what are you? And reportedly he said, I'm awake. That's all he said, I'm awake. And so this word Buddha means one who is awake. So when we're invited to take refuge in the Buddha, we can think of it as taking refuge in our highest potential to be awake and undeluded, our capacity to see clearly, to develop profound wisdom and compassion, just as the Buddha himself did 2,600 years ago. And just to say, Buddha was not a god. So this idea of taking refuge is not about cultivating some kind of dependence on him, relating to him as a savior or anything like that. What we're invited to do is orient towards his example, to turn our attention inwards, to deeply understand our hearts and minds so that we can live with more ease and freedom no matter what our life circumstances are. This ease and freedom comes from living in alignment with the truth of how things actually are rather than how we'd like them to be. And again, I think a lot of us tend to spend a lot of time and energy trying to manipulate the world out there to make it how how we want it to be. And so we're, in a way, strengthening an addictive, compulsive relationship with external circumstances And no, even though this strategy is at best only ever partly successful, unless we've been shown a different way, we just keep trying. So the Buddha, as I said earlier, invited us instead to put our attention inwards and transform our relationship to how things actually are instead of trying to change the things themselves. And this doesn't mean that we just become apathetic and, you know, never do anything but again it's the relationship that we're doing it with if we're doing it if i can just get this then i'll be happy if i can just get that then i'll be happy if only it was like that then i'll be happy anybody recognize that kind of the next thing the next thing that's going to do it for me and we never stop and look at the underlying dissatisfaction and change that dissatisfaction to kindness and compassion and so on So 
when we deeply understand that everything is changing and when we have some capacity to let go of our often self-centered need to be in control, we can start to live more in alignment with how things actually are. And this is one meaning of the word Dhamma. So Dhamma, like a lot of Pali words, has multiple meanings. One is the truth of how things are. Another is the teachings themselves that point to that truth. And the more we live in accordance with the Dhamma, generally speaking, the easier our life is because we're not resisting, fighting, struggling with reality. So I think as Byron Katie said something like, don't fight with reality, you'll only lose and only 100% of the time. So I think we can recognize the truth of that and yet often we have this compulsive habit because it's difficult and that's where the sangha comes in. You know, a lot of what we're doing in living in alignment with the Dhamma is going against the values of mainstream society. So we need moral support. We need the support of each other, the support of like-minded people. And when we have this shared intention to wake up together, we create this temporary community that's supportive of this inner work. And we need role models to inspire us, and we need role models to offer each other support. So usually we talk about taking refuge in the Sangha, but I like to emphasize it's also about giving refuge. Because the fact that every one of you here showed up tonight, that's a giving of refuge to each other. So it's not all a one-way street. There's a giving of refuge and a taking of refuge. It's a reciprocal flow. So if you came along tonight and it was just me and two other people, it would have a different energy probably because all of you made that effort, that sharing of that effort builds momentum, builds energy, makes the group sustainable. So we're all in this together and together we create something that's stronger than our individual practice. So these three refuges are the starting point that we orient towards. And then traditionally we then commit to taking the five ethical training precepts which are all grounded in non-harming. And before we do that, I just want to say that uh, this non-harming is really quite a different approach to ethics than many of us are familiar with in terms of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Even if we weren't directly brought up with different religious traditions, it's kind of the foundation of our society. And so when we hear terms like ethics or morals or virtues or precepts and things... Again, speaking for myself, there can be a little bit of like, mm, not so sure. And again, in traditional Judeo-Christian settings, ethics is, tends to be approached with a kind of stick approach, whereas the Buddha's approach is much more the carrot approach. So he really emphasized the benefits the happiness that comes from ethical conduct rather than the punishment or the blame or the shame side of it. 
So he really emphasized also that the keeping the training precepts, all of which are rooted in non-harming, is a profound act of generosity to ourselves and to others. So he talked about the five precepts as being five great gifts. And that by keeping them, we give freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. And he went on to say that we ourselves benefit from this commitment to non-harming because in giving freedom from danger and animosity and oppression, we share in that freedom. We share in that freedom because we don't have to fear being caught or punished or blamed or shamed. So again, we see this reciprocity. It's a two-way street. By protecting others, we also protect ourselves from harm. Others have nothing to fear from us and we have nothing to fear from others because we're living a blameless life. And there's a phrase that appears in the suttas very often, the bliss of blamelessness. We don't often associate ethical conduct with bliss. But again, that's the carrot, the bliss of blamelessness. This blamelessness also has a very powerful effect on our meditation practice. And I want to emphasize that because on the West, we tend to have put far much more emphasis on meditation and very little, at least in lay settings, on the other aspects of the path. But in the Buddha's teachings, he talked about three aspects of the path as being like a tripod with three legs or a stool with three legs. Ethical conduct is one leg. Meditation is another leg. And wisdom is the third leg. And we need all three of these legs to be equally well developed. Otherwise, we're going to have a wonky stool. We'll be off balance. So ethical conduct comes first because if we want to have a calm, clear mind, we need it not to be agitated by remorse, worry, anxiety, shame, self-judgment, and so on. So the more we can clean up our act in the world, the better chance we have of being able to still the heart-mind in meditation. And when the heart-mind is still in meditation, deeper wisdom in the form of insight, can emerge. But it doesn't stop there because that wisdom and understanding then feeds back into our ethical conduct and refines it. And then because our ethical conduct is more refined, we're able to access more refined states of mind, which sharpens the wisdom and so on. So it's actually a spiraling upward kind of momentum that can happen. And I'm pretty confident that all of you can see some of that in the context of your own life. If you think back to before you started meditating, or maybe even in the early days, there was probably things you used to do in your life that you kind of knew weren't strictly, but you'd be like, well, everyone does it. It's not that big a deal, you know. It's not, And you would do it, right? Or am I the only one? <laughs> Okay, that was a bad thing to ask. But then later on in your practice, right, you would think about that same thing and you'd be like, no, that's not a good idea. And then still later on again, it wouldn't even occur to you 
perhaps, to do that thing that 10 years ago or 20 years ago was marginal, but not that big a deal. Does that feel true for anyone? So you can see in the context of your own practice how the meditation, the wisdom, the ethical conduct all spiral around and reinforce each other. And I wanted to highlight this a little bit because, as I said earlier, in the West, I think we brought the technology of meditation and we made that the priority and we conveniently, quietly dropped the other stuff, perhaps because this was coming to the West in the 60s, a little slightly before my time. But I have a sense that back then there was a kind of a naive hope that all you had to do was meditate deep enough, long enough, hard enough, and some point, poof, all of your neuroses would disappear and you'd live happily ever after. And there was no sense that what you did outside of the meditation practice would impact the state of the heart and mind. Now that's become much clearer. We understand meditation doesn't happen in a vacuum. Nevertheless, a lot of people come to meditation hoping that it will change their lives, but they don't see that they need to change their lives in order to support their meditation. So again, there's a reciprocity. There's a holist- this is a holistic path. We can't just develop one aspect without bringing all of them into play. So just again to name that because of a deep conditioning for many of us, there can be, this whole topic can bring up self-judgment, shame, blame, feeling we're in danger of being branded as right or wrong and fear, fear of becoming a goody two-shoes or, you know, there's many different kinds of conditioning that can play into this. We might be afraid of being seen as self-righteous or repressed or uh, fear of being judged or punished. And again, this is, I think, because of our default negativity bias, really encourage you as you explore this to look at what you're doing well. None of us, none of you will be sitting here unless there wasn't already a lot of skillful stuff going on. I'm pretty sure that today none of you have intentionally killed a living being or intentionally told a lie or intentionally used your sexual energy in harmful ways or got drunk or high. Uh, probably not. <laughs> so, you know, we can laugh, but it's, it's, it's yeah, there's still, there's, yeah, there's a few more hours. But in three and a half hours, you probably can't get into too much trouble. Don't, don't prove me wrong. <laughs> what I'm trying to do is just highlight how easy it is to take for granted the fact that all of you are already working with these precepts, consciously or not, living, I would say, a more ethical standard than the norm. So let that be your baseline rather than judging when you, if when you slip up really also see the 99 other times when you didn't and let that be a cause of celebration. In a similar way with each of the precepts, we can get hung up on what we're not supposed to do. But as each one becomes more refined, 
it becomes an invitation to look at the positive aspect of it. So, for example, the first precept. Anyone remember what it is? Yeah, don't kill, not to kill living beings. That's these those, these these precepts are like a not to do list. They're very simple in their first laying out, and I think of them as being like the flags on the beach. Swim between these flags, and you'll be okay. Because again, I don't know if you've had the experience of swimming not between the flags. This has happened to me, not realizing there was a rip until, whoa, I've drifted way down the beach. But it was because the flags were there as a reference point that I got to see. I am actually moving in the wrong direction here. So these training precepts invite us to swim between the flags so we have a reference point that's going to keep us safe. We start by committing to not killing living beings, but as the wisdom kicks in, as our minds become clearer and more refined, it becomes an invitation to act with reverence for all forms of life, to actively support compassion. Likewise with the second precept, anyone remember what that is? Yes, thank you. Don't take what's not freely offered. In other words, very simply, don't steal. And then in its positive expression, to practice contentment, to practice appreciation, to practice gratitude for what we all already have. And again, every one of us in this room, actually, sure, we have our challenges, but overall, we have a pretty privileged lifestyle. And can we really appreciate and celebrate that. Third one. It's interesting to know which ones we don't quite remember. (laughs) Sexual energy, yeah. Not to misuse our sexual energy in ways that cause harm. So again, the emphasis is on harming, not so much on whatever the act is that we're doing. And so this, in its positive expression, is an invitation to practice contentment in one's relationships and to protect and support other people's relationships also. To not use people as objects, but to really celebrate their humanity, you could say. And then the fourth one. Yes, not to refrain from lying. Um, I said it's wrong speech, which is classified as lying, harsh speech, gossip, frivolous speech, and so on. And again, the invitation is on its most basic level to not practice harsh speech. But as it extends into the positive, can we speak words that are, there's a phrase in the sutta that's like, that delight in concord, in harmony, in bringing people together and uplifting people rather than denigrating them. So this is a huge arena for most of us, infinitely, again speaking for myself, infinitely refinable. And I see this also in connection with technology. So those of you who've been on retreat, you know that this precept on retreat becomes maintaining noble silence which also involves not using technology. And off retreat, 
we communicate a lot through our devices. And again, it's a two-way thing. And again, this technology can be incredibly addictive. So it can be an invitation to, from time to time, put aside the technology, have a tech-free day or device-free half-day, and just notice what effect that has. I try to do that at least once a month, and every time I'm amazed how differently I feel at the end of the day. And the next day I go back to it. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's amazing like what a difference it can make to have those little built-in pauses from technology. And then the fifth one is to avoid intoxicants which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. And again, technology, some teachers are saying this should be put in the fifth precept because it often is so addictive. And again, we can look at all kinds of different addictive behavior, but really refine what are we consuming? What are we taking into our hearts and minds? So not only literal recreational drugs, but what about magazines and media and TV shows? And a lot of that stuff is not that healthy in various ways. So practicing contentment and really cultivating health of the heart-mind is the positive expression. So I think that's probably enough of an overview just to get a sense of uh, what traditionally these refuges and precepts involve. And I wanted to share that just so that we can offer formally chanting them together now for those who would like. Again, just as an invitation to sort of launch this year, set an intention, set an inclination, alignment in a beneficial way, not only for yourself, but for everyone you interact with. Okay, so thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.